welcome back to the periphery. Uh, today we have, and I dare, I hate to sound like a broken record, but we have yet another fantastic interview. <laughs> I do. <laughs> a conversation. Um, this time we're hosting Mogli from Penn Law. She is a tro she is, you know, like us, grappling and building expertise in these technical esoteric, hard to parse through and understand fields. As you know, I uh, went to Stanford for undergrad, graduated in 2015, um, was a fuzzy, very much on the social sciences uh, side. Just like we are. Yeah. And uh, after that, I ended up going to the London School of Economics to pursue a master's degree in inequalities and social science. So sticking in the same realm, knew I cared about equity issues. I grew up in a pretty diverse and um, interesting home environment. I come from a multicultural background. So my dad is French and immigrated to the States um, when he was a teenager, sort of had a scrappy sort of way into, into, into America. <laughs> so he, he like moved to Hawaii first, was a cook, then moved to LA, somehow met my mom. It's a long story, but anyway, so my mom is black. She, her family, um, her mother's side of the family is from Louisiana and father's side is other from the South as well. So they somehow met in LA and uh, as a result of a very sort of fun multicultural family and um, grew up in separate households though in Venice, California. And um, at the time it was not this sort of fun Silicon Beach place that uh, I think my classmate um, of a couple years older, <laughs> Evan Spiegel, uh, probably helped oh, yeah. create. Um, it's, it's a very oh, Snapchat, snap yeah. Um, Venice has a great reputation these days. It's, it's a very different place than when I grew up. I'll put it that way. Um, and for you know, good, good reasons and bad reasons. And um, but what I liked most about it was the fact that it was uh, super diverse and it really was a community. And so I think having that. Uh, having that upbringing was really important to me and started got me asking questions about equity, financial equity, racial equity, like what does this stuff mean for different communities of color? And what can I do after pursuing all these fancy degrees uh, to help with that and um, sort of try to understand some of these issues that are just hard to hard to parse through, but really important. So how how did how did technology factor into all of this? Um, as you were as you were kind of studying um, inequality and and coming from this quote unquote fuzzy background that we also come from. Yeah, so I think it's a good question. Um, at Stanford, I think I had a really huge aversion to everything tech related, <laughs> primarily because it was very clearly at the forefront. So that meant that there was a little bit of a divide between, I mean, the fact that we even have this colloquial term for fuzzies versus techies is like sort of silly, but I, I, I've heard about that. You step in undergrad. Yeah, well. undergrad <laughs> thing. I don't, yeah, I don't think it's floating around yeah. the grad schools as much, um, but it was a real thing. It definitely was a real thing. And especially, um, you know, during the time that I was there, 2011 to 2015, 
you know, you're seeing all these startups pop up left and right. Stanford's really at the center of a lot of these like tech innovations. Silicon Valley is everything that everyone is talking about all the time. And when you're studying something like the civil rights movement or, you know, how ancient communities, uh, you know, practiced certain cultural practices that they've practiced for a long time, you know, you sort of have a disjointed view of, you know, what's what's going on. So I studied history and that was really informative, but there was very much sort of a separation from all of the tech stuff that was going on. What, what does that mean for careers, right? So I think that's where tech comes in. It becomes this sort of giant field that a lot of Stanford folks go into. And at the time, I didn't really feel like that was a space for me to go into. I didn't feel like it was a career field that was available to me. I mean, people, you know, casually and sort of jokingly or not so jokingly say, what do you do with a history degree? Um, <laughs> you could do a lot of things. Um, <laughs> primarily, you learn a lot about the world. Including working in tech, apparently. And you could also work in tech with a history degree. Uh, <laughs> so... I had a little bit of an aversion to that at first, um, but I had plenty of friends who were in tech, right? And that was something that was really interesting to them. And I was exposed uh, through them to tech. There was a lot I related in this conversation with her, um, particularly when it comes to the barriers of entry and kind of feeling like these fields are not accessible. Um, I think, Jess, you were talking about the false dichotomy um, between yeah between fuzzy and techie i mean when i heard those terms that was new to me too and it it kind of made me laugh um because like we're all fuzzies like what about a med like like what if you're going to medical school are you a fuzzy i know some fr- like some friends in medical school that would be like <laughs> i don't know exactly yeah and i thought like especially in academia the fuzzy techie false divide um really is just like a question of whether you can do math and uh, Mogli mentioned early on how she associated tech with her experience with calculus, which was not a good experience uh, in in uh, in college. I didn't quite find a, an entry point that felt natural to me. And some of the social impact tech stuff just wasn't hitting the mark for me for some reason. And maybe it was my own sort of personal bias and aversion to all things tech. I sort of ended up lumping it in a bucket with... Um, calculus it was a traumatic experience for me um my first quarter of undergrad i think that's a very relatable experience i just (laughs) there was no reason for me to have done that to myself um so (laughs) here we are today and that's interesting because math really doesn't have anything to do with the issues that we're talking about you know not we're not even talking about the technical aspects from computer science that might apply but uh even though, even though they, they really uh, have limited relevance when we're talking about social issues and we're talking about policy using these technologies. You have to understand um, the interface between the power of these technologies uh, and the people that they affect. And that is far removed. And I think Mogli, her career is, is, is proof of this. Uh, very far removed uh, from the very mathematical and technical aspects of yeah. computing and much less just general calculus. Um, and so, and so yeah, like hearing her story about overcoming those psychological barriers, um, was, uh, was inspiring. And also I thought I saw, we saw, I saw a lot of ourselves in her. Oh, totally. I mean, just for me personally, part of why 
you know, I'm in the field that I am, I felt there was a discomfort in me, in college in general, as like a black person, but even more so in these STEM fields where, I mean, part of my reason of going into tech was I had a mentor when I first got, got into law school telling me, going to tech, it's going nowhere. And then moreover, when we got into that data privacy class, for the first time I felt called in, I saw myself in these issues. I saw that these issues weren't removed from my experience as a person and, and my enjoyment of life. Um, and, you know, there was so much relatability there where, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a technological thing. It's a, it's a society and culture thing mm-hmm. that technology in many ways serves as a barrier. Yeah. I also just want to say it really resonated with me too. And I think it probably a lot of people can relate to the fact that like her identity wasn't the first reason that she gave for like the reason that she didn't do tech, you know, like the reason that she was, but then when you pressed her on it, she was sort of like, you know what, now that I think about it, like I probably just didn't feel comfortable. If I take a step back, you know, I don't want to put a sort of particular label on it, but I, you know, I can't ignore the obvious. I am a black woman in a field of folks who do not look like me or have similar backgrounds as me, which I grew up in a very sort of multicultural setting. I went to an international school. That's not necessarily a problem for me per se, but I think that it did sort of create these um, sort of unspoken barriers. And that translates into stereotype threat and all types of things. You know, there's so many studies on this. Um, and unfortunately, it just didn't create sort of a welcoming space. And, and I keep thinking about this because it shouldn't just be, you know, what does the community look like on its face? But that is unfortunately important. And the reason why it's important is because of the language, the language that's used in those spaces um, and the doors um, into those spaces. Who's opening those doors? Who's bringing you into these conversations, these spaces? So like what you're doing, opening this forum for folks to come discuss these issues in a sort of, you know, lower barrier to entry way allows for more opportunity to actually feel comfortable in this space. And like, I totally relate to that. Like, I I didn't take a single, like, technological focused class in college, even though I was interested in it, because I just felt like, I don't know, I think, I don't know, I don't know. I just didn't feel like I belonged in that class. Um, But then I feel like when we when I came to Stanford and saw everyone's different backgrounds that were interested in the, issue, the same issues. And I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. And I think that that is one thing that like, we definitely try to push on the periphery. Um, like in our, our conversation with Kai, like he, his background was in humanities and now he's working at visa. Like that's huge. And I think, I just hope that no one feels like they are not equipped because of like their prior education, because of their upbringing to like be in this field and like, be a force mm. in this. Yeah, and I, I just want to add that um, uh, Kai studied sociology, uh, Mogli Mog- Mog- studied history. Um, those are my majors. And, <laughs> <laughs> and they're you. They're, and so combine them. And and, uh, and, and I, I just think that August is the perfect combination. But one thing that sociology taught me and history uh, was um, that as much as, you know, as I was thinking about how, how could I break into tech, because like, like like all of us, I felt this intuition that it was important and fascinating, but also I felt like I just didn't fit that mold um, of of someone who could be confident talking about these issues. Um, 
and 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 I think that you can go in both directions. One one direction, which which uh, Mogli also talked about, is connecting her interest in equity, her uh, quote unquote fuzzy uh, but very important and I mean arguably existential societal uh, interests um, with with new and evolving technologies. And she did that through activism and through being being engaged in organizations that were very very focused on social issues. Another thing that I think is also useful is expanding your definition of technology. And this relates to what we were talking about with our interview with Jonas a few weeks back, where, where we were comparing old-fashioned contracts with smart contracts. Smart contracts we consider technology. Why don't we talk about regular contracts as technologies? Because they are in many ways. Um, like a broader social view of technology, recognizing that the lines are so blurry that they are pretty much arbitrary. Um, and recognizing that there's all these forms of technology, and ultimately what Mogli said, which is that every technology tends to create a lot of opportunity to good to to do good or bad, but you've got to, you've got to use it, and that's where you need a lot of uh, humanistic and societal awareness, a lot of working knowledge about that. The internet, that is probably one of our biggest tech innovations, at least in our lifetime and our parents' lifetime and our grandparents' lifetime. That is extremely enabling for a lot of social issues to be solved. Um, talk about access, communication, um, you know, resources. It just opens up this whole new opportunity, right? And so, yes, I do think that that, that different tech initiatives, whatever it is, and, and tech companies have the opportunity to do that. But it's an opportunity. It's not necessarily... It's an opportunity that actually needs to be capitalized on, not just spoken about casually. And so I'll be honest, let's take my the company that I work for, tech company with social uh, impact goals. While I was working there, I was very frustrated because it felt heavy on the tech. <laughs> um, well, I wouldn't say heavy on the tech, just heavy on the business. I'll put it that way, because we tend to sort of call everything a startup and a tech startup, whatever, just because it's a business that happened like post the year 2000 does not mean it's necessarily tech startup, but that's what everything's being called. So heavy on the business side. And at times I felt like it was less heavy on the social side. And I was hoping for a slightly different balance, um, but really grateful for those skills. And one thing I will say is that you sort of have to understand like what like, what is your own definition of social impact? What does that mean? Like, does that mean like, oh, okay, like, yes, this person now has a loan that they have to pay back with interest. So that sucks for them. You could see through that lens or you could see through the lens of, well, if they didn't get that loan, they would not be going to Harvard Business School, period. And so who knows what that would have led to. I think that both lenses are, are, are very appropriate, especially in this century. Uh, when we're looking at new technologies and it's making us question what technology actually is. Yeah, and I mean, I think even more to that point, how she got called back into technology was through a quasi non-technological position mm -hmm. uh, in many ways. I mean, if we're going to like use the the conventional understanding of what technology is mm -hmm. um, and and how it was about student loans and getting uh, giving people access to these universities that we're at. I ended up applying for this tech job and it was, I was a, drawn to it. And I think it was the only tech job that I applied to, but I was drawn to it because it had a sort of social impact purpose. And it was a student loan company and their focus was really on enabling access to education 
financing for for international students who didn't have any sort of access to those financing opportunities if they were going to grad school abroad. So folks coming from Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, Asia, Europe, U.S., vice versa. And if they're going to Europe, U.S., and trying to go to Stanford Law School or Harvard Business School or Penn Law or wherever it is, they can't get a loan <laughs> in this foreign country. And if you're coming from Argentina and your currency's devalued, I mean, there's just a lot of issues, right? Yeah. And this is sort of, you know, a, a huge problem that um, I ended up sort of falling into and worked at that company for a couple of years doing business development, working with schools, students, um, and internally, cross-functionally across teams. And although my, I was in tech, my role, was to sort of be a bridge, right? And to communicate all these different issues, whether it's technical issues or social issues that we had um, and translate them into business problems. Like what, like how do we solve this, right? So that was sort of my foray into tech inadvertently before coming to law school. Just as an American, it's, yes, we do have a loan problem. I mean, you know, relatable. Uh, <laughs> but just even to access those loans and access that financing is in many ways, I, 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 I hesitate to say a privilege, but at least an opportunity. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, loans themselves, very interesting technique. <laughs> uh, an applied skill, a tool. Uh, to to move wealth around efficiently. But, you know, and really this is like enhancing that technology, you know, through supplements. Uh, I mean, I mean that I thought really just kind of fuses uh, what we see as social justice uh, or societal problems and technology problems. Yeah, for for anyone, for anyone thinking about taking out student loans, I just want to echo that hesitation is a completely healthy thing. <laughs> Oh my God. Maybe explain nothing, nothing was, I think, um, more, at least for me, the decision, you know, getting into law school, a very exciting moment. Um, and then then I was confronting six figures of debt. And it really made, it really made me step, take a step back. And yeah. like, and almost, I mean, in many ways, and depending on when you asked me my law school career, I was like, I shouldn't have done this. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah. But, but the point being, you could have. You could do it. Could what? Do what? Sorry. Like you had the opportunity. Yeah, exactly. To take I had the opportunity. To, like, to, to like chase the dream that you had that you were like nervous about not taking a chance on yeah, yourself to and, take. And, and, <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, uh, you know, and it's even, even more interesting to like think about that conversation that we had about like the risk, the risk of going to law school, you know. And, and there's always going to be a, some degree of risk. But if you're not taking any risk at all. Um, then you can't be a first mover. I think being a first mover, almost by definition, will involve some risk and... Oh yeah, and I'm a risk-averse person. I think we all are because we're lawyers and that's, yeah. the, common narr that's the common narrative about <laughs> lawyers, even though it's probably false. Because if you think about it, you're risking a whole career off a $300,000 education that is supposed to send you to a firm. So, <laughs> so... It's, it's doing its also job, risk. you know? <laughs> it's a well-oiled machine. <laughs> no, but I think you're right. It's it, it's a lot about risk-taking. I'm not someone who generally is uh, the biggest risk-taker, but I think that in my excitement and optimistic 
viewpoint of hopefully being able to find a different type of solution because clearly certain issues have not been solved yet. But you're still buying a house in many states, not in California, but you're still buying a house for a piece of paper to then have more opportunities, hopefully. You know, it's, it's it, there's a risk embedded that that we were given access to. Other people just can't even start that absent people in these spaces yeah. Yeah. who are able to make the technology move in a way that opens those doors. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I thought, I thought Mogli presented a very balanced, um, uh, I guess, approach or, or, or discourse on, on the social impact of technology, because she, we, we, you could see it. She, she was consciously putting on a more optimistic hat at times, other times kind of, uh, you know, speaking based on her own intuitions about technology, which started with aversion. And, um, but I think that ultimately she was able to point out a pretty uh, compelling um, method for people who are interested in serving the public or who are interested in addressing uh, social problems that we've dealt with for generations, um, which is when you're looking at technology, she mentioned that you should just ask some three basic questions. One, people, who who is doing this, right? It, this isn't just something that occurs. It's not just a phenomenon. People drive these initiatives. People drive these projects. People, people build technologies. It is still at the end of the day driven by people. So who is doing that? That's like the biggest condition. And so if it's only going to be a small group of uh, folks, and if it's going to be mostly folks who are male, cisgender, white, the traditional folks that you see sort of building these major companies, at least the ones that we know about and hear about and that are valued uh, by society the most, that's that's going to be sort of an issue. I mean, you're not going to be able, it depends who you're trying to, to impact, right? So social impact for who, if you're trying to impact, um, you know, communities abroad, you're going to need people from those communities to be doing part of the innovating. You, you can't just do this in a vacuum. So who is the number one sort of condition? Two, um, how it funding, <laughs> I mean, we could, we could have a whole, I think other episode on yeah. funding and what yeah. that means for the whole VC world, what that means for different alternative ways of fundraising for people to have a lower barrier to entry, to build products, to build companies that want to do really impactful things. So that's the how piece that needs to sort of be solved. That's an important condition for, you know, achieving any sort of social impact. And lastly, I think, yes, lots of different technologies can create social impact. And I think what I am most excited about is what, right? Like what social impact are we going to be focusing on? I think there's a lot of distraction, distractions going on right now. And there's obviously a lot of important social issues, but the biggest piece of this is sort of what social issues do we think are the most important? Do we value the most to solve? Who? Who is doing it? Who, who are the people who are implementing, creating, controlling the technology? Uh, then how? Uh, how is it funded? Where is the money coming from? Uh, and, and because that has serious implications for how that technology will be used and where the impact will be. And then finally is what social impact? How do you define that? 
And how do you define that in a way that is salient for the technologies that you're experimenting with? And overall, so there's the ethos of, of experimentation. You know, find a way to experiment in a way that's safe, uh, because, uh, but also uh, fair. And because when you, when you take that risk, when a, a for example, uh, uh, she mentioned uh, RMK, a dancing group in, in San Francisco. Um, I'll give RMK as an example, right, of an application that I'm trying to solve for because I think there could be a million applications. But to be specific and concrete, I think Black artists deserve ownership up front of their work. They have been ripped off for centuries and not credited for forever. And this is a way, and I'm, I'm saying those statements as hyperbolic statements to make a point, not to be taken literally, but if we do look at the numbers, I don't think I'd be far off. I, I think that it is an, a really cool opportunity for artists of color in particular to reclaim ownership of their work and not necessarily reclaim, I should rephrase that, to state and claim ownership of their work from the start. So instead of having to sort of backtrack and negotiate and work in these existing frameworks of how the music industry works and how the dance world works and how the theater world works, et cetera, um, which are these sort of pre-made systems that don't allow for incredible flexibility. So with RMK, we have been thinking about, so I'll just for background, RMK is a um, black founded dance company founded by Robert Moses. My brother would love this. He's he's a dancer. Uh, so this is like right up his alley. I'm definitely going to have to send him this like interview as soon as we're done. <laughs> well, amazing. Well, if he's in the Bay Area, we're actually having our home performance in April, first weekend of April in San Francisco. So um, definitely encourage everyone to attend. So RMK was founded in the 90s and is a really innovative dance group that cares about communities of color, especially in the Bay Area. And they do a lot of community service um, with elderly folks in the community, with the youth. They do a lot of youth programs. Um, and they really try to use the intersection of dance and social justice to change the way people think about issues, to change how people think about art, to reimagine what they think about themselves through these experiences that intersect art and social justice. So caring a lot about RMK and what they're trying to do as a dance company and as a former dancer myself, I shouldn't say former, I still dance, dance, but modern and oh, ballet. Very cool. So uh, yes, shout out to all of my Stanford dance professors who were incredible, including Robert. That's how I met him. And I care a lot about those things. And I said, okay, well, one thing that we struggle with as a nonprofit is enough fundraising. And the nonprofit space is just saturated with a lot of sort of grant funding and grant funding is incredible. That is much needed and we're going to still heavily rely on that. But what would it look like for a nonprofit to be able to still capitalize on some of these extreme profits from blockchain? 
we can do our nonprofit work, but do we have to have no resources to do that? We could do more work or like, or with more resources. To, you know, you're one or two donors who want to see things done in the specific way that yeah. might deviate from your mission internally. Yes, or even just being able to have the freedom, the liberty of of investing in the same programs that you would have anyway with the grant money, but at a larger scale. You know, there's only so much grant funding that goes around. Um, so what can you do to start establishing um, long-term stability and growth for a nonprofit? Crypto is something that we're thinking about. It's an experiment. We don't know if that's going to work out. We don't know if that's going to be helpful. And it seems ironic because if I say crypto, a lot of people will say, and stability in the same sentence, they would say, those things don't go together. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but, and we could talk about NFTs and get into that, but thinking of it from a holistic blockchain perspective, there are a lot of different opportunities. Crypto donations, something that we're trying to, we're working on, we're trying to get through there's a lot of barriers to doing that as a nonprofit, I'm realizing. And um, also working on different innovative projects. So NFTs are a really incredible space for artists. Right now, it's currently saturated by a particular type of art, a lot of AI art, a lot of sort of tech. A lot and of board apes. Yeah, exactly. It's just, I, I don't, there's a word for it, but I don't know exactly how to call it. New Age, it's 2022 art, and it's a specific type. And what I would love to see is more artists of color in that space, but it's really hard. I mean, you first have to get crypto. You then have to understand like, what's this wallet thing? Oh, and I also need an exchange. Oh, and I use, need to use ETH and I need to pay extra fees and you pay gas fees to then put up an NFT. Where do I put it up? Where does it live? What's in the contract? How do you get the contract up? It seems so easy when people talk about it. Oh my gosh, smart contracts, NFTs are simplifying everyone's world. You can, you can create royalties. And that narrative is true at the same time as the opposite narrative. They coexist at the same time, depending on who's doing it. So I think that's sort of the biggest takeaway that I've had from this space is you know, I've done a ton of reading on my own to really learn about this space. I've had incredible mentors, friends, and um, people to speak with about, you know, I talked to my boyfriend about this. I talked to one of my best friends, Shannon, who I mentioned before about this, and to, to, to start learning, right? And I think that that's the goal here is to really learn and also bring other people in with you while you're learning so that it doesn't feel like that strong, that heavy of a barrier or that, yeah. So with RMK, that has been a unique experience trying to explain things to a very, very non-technical audience and break it down in terms of what can, how can this be helpful for us? Why should we try to explore it? And we're in the midst of it. So I'll let you know <laughs> in a couple of months how it goes.
when you take the risk of, 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 of experimenting with new, with new technologies, you're also opening doors. You're expanding the access uh, and the knowledge of people uh, about those technologies and what they can do and what they might do in the future. And we're going to get a lot of new ideas from that. And so experimentation in itself... Whether it succeeds or fails. Yeah, whether it succeeds or fails, you've already succeeded at least in expanding that conversation in doing what it might be yeah. in doing what we do. <laughs> yeah. And when it comes to engaging like with the tech sector or sort of um, like venturing into the tech sector, I thought I found it really cool that like she applied to one technology company because like she resonated, like the mis- mission resonated with her. And I think that's great. I think like if you're just blanket applying to tech companies because you think that it's like they have like bouncy balls and like ping pong, which like they probably do, <laughs> but, like you're going to become quickly disenchanted with the fact that like not all tech companies are doing like world changing things or maybe they are but maybe it's not the like change that you want to see so i thought that was really cool and in many ways it reminded me of why i find tech so compelling and kind of like not a calling because that it's that's too high but like just really (laughs) very drawn to it you're more than that (laughs) Um, was, well, I mean, part of the advice I got from my mentor, uh, or part of my, and I've talked to you about this a lot, August, part of my reason of fully committing and diving into tech, there are no black people, mm-hmm. n- much less black queer people. Um, not unlike there are very, very few. I mean, I, won't, I hesitate to say none because there are enough and you can, <laughs> you know, there are, they're there. Um, but that pipeline is not nearly as broad and big as it should be um, because, I can't represent anyone despite the expectations sometimes I feel or that others might put on to me to do so. But when we have like a diversity of people here and all of a sudden, you know, just like ownership, we, you know, she's talking about how, how can we use black blockchain to, and with an artist background as well, how do we, how can we use blockchain to cut out the middleman and create more opportunities for ownership, uh, create more opportunities to, you know, own the culture that, that, you know, in broad strokes, they don't like black people, like, they don't own the culture. It, it maybe create in many aspects, but ownership, that's everything, you know, <laughs> that's, 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 that's how, at least in this society, how the engine runs mm-hmm. and ownership can dictate whether or not you even have a chance uh, at pushing the envelope or even being seen and heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think that Mogli was very aware that so many people, when they hear crypto, if they think of anything at all, they're not thinking about historical racial justice. Uh, certainly not, you know, compensating people uh, for for their creative endeavors uh, when those have been systema- systematically robbed. They might not even know about that historical phenomenon. And, uh, you know, this kind of goes to Mogli's general way of learning, uh, which is always incorporating her whole network. At the time, I had a really good friend of mine, Shannon Wu, who is an incredible leader in the blockchain space, in the tech world. She is incredible, fantastic, highly recommend you all chat to her too. And she, anyone listening, please like look her up. She is often, I think, the person behind the scenes moving a lot of pieces. Um, And at the time, she was like, buy Bitcoin. This was like 2013 or 2012. I was like, 
I have like $300 in my account and I'm eating at the dining hall and I'm saving that. I've been like working at a desk job to like save that up. I'm not giving my my little $300 to anyone or anything. I have no idea what this is. No thanks. <laughs> well, it's 2022 and <laughs> jokes on me. Um, but, you know, I, I think that a couple years ago, I guess, was it 2020 or 2021? My boyfriend was like, you need to take another look at this. Give it another shot. Because I had been sort of blinders on, like, okay, I see some some cool things happening, but I, I don't really see how it's applicable to the issues that I'm interested in. So that, I think, is an intersection um, that I think is really, really a huge opportunity for creating social change. But I'm already starting to see some of the same the same issues that have popped up in other fields with actually creating meaningful change. And so that's part of the reason why I was like, hey, it's earlier enough in this space, like what can I do to learn from this? Instead of just observing what I think are the issues from afar, why don't I just get involved a little bit closer so that it, I'm not just feeling totally powerless in this space and I can try my best to, you know, change whatever direction I see certain things going on. Talking to her mom, her, 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 her family, her friends, uh, learning from them, teaching them at the same time, and then getting insights from them. Reading an article, talking to a friend, sending something to a friend and being like, I don't know what I just read. What is this? Do you understand this? You know, and or bringing it up to your parents and looping them in. I'm now starting to get emails from my mom saying, Oh, something about NFTs that I'd share with you, which my is... My mom does that too. The more I got into tech, she's like, this seems like an interesting thing. She's very social justice oriented, so it's always like, what's some racial equity uh, angle? <laughs> I love that. Well, yeah, it is. this is a stark difference from beforehand where she was like, I don't know. But, um, you know, she's on this journey with me, right? It's I, this wouldn't, I can't be on this journey if I don't bring her along And that's, me. I think, something pretty insightful, especially for people who are on the periphery. Um, uh, of, of of tech and of of power and wealth, which is um, which is more and more becoming one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and all those things are closely over overlapping. It's 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 as you are trying to acquire new knowledge, to teach yourself, to learn things, um, bring others with you because you will learn better that way. Uh, you'll also stay connected to the issues that you care about. You'll have better knowledge uh, than others who don't have access to those particular individuals. Um, and and also you maybe you'll 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 be able to have that focus that she had when she picked one tech company rather than just trying to uh, be appealing to all of them um, because it's yeah. connected to those issues. And this is something I've thought more and more about, like in considering, like we all have big decisions about like where we're going to work, where we're going to live after law school. I think like I used to think, okay, I'm going to be a tech lawyer. So the goal is to like become like get integrated into Silicon Valley. And I don't think that that is like necessarily needs to be the goal. I think the goal is to like, understand Silicon Valley, understand the tech sector. And if you want to like export the good parts of it to other parts of the country or other parts of the world that like could benefit from. It, it even calls me back to like, why, why, or not even why, just like, I've just been thinking about when I first heard of NFTs, it really wasn't that long ago. It was like maybe six to eight months ago. Um, and I brought it up to 
my copyright professor, whom I really respect and love. Uh, he's a great professor. But I brought it up, and he immediately shut it down as, it's a scam. And yeah. meanwhile, on Twitter, my exposure to NFTs have often been paraded in this narrative of, you know, black art, black art, like all these different, the social justice angle where, you know, perhaps what we're purchasing with an NFT doesn't necessarily need to be tangible in the conventional sense of, hey, I have a white claw, I bought this. Uh, <laughs> you know, it. The, the benefit, you know, is, and I remember I read an article that came to my LinkedIn of just like, you're buying into an idea or you're buying into, um, you know, a general person's view of the world and you're, you're, you're adding your stake to that in support. Uh, in this in this kind of weird way, or not weird, just like I think innovative way of seeing technology not necessarily as an ends to a mean or, or, or means to an end, but as a as a path. Or I guess it's the same thing, but like <laughs> as a pathway toward correcting some of these issues that we have lived with in historic inequities. That hey, here's this new technology, and it can get directly to the artist you want it, and it can help them do all these new things that they had to go through a label before to do. Kind of like when the internet first came, mm -hmm. where the internet was cutting out the publisher in many ways mm -hmm. and enabling me to connect with the 42 people, the, the people in the 42 countries that the periphery's been downloaded in. Uh <laughs> we hear you, 42 countries. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's just making me think about, like, what what is our goal here? Like, what what is our goal with innovation? What is our goal with technological proliferation is our goal to create more value and what do we mean by value do we mean by like what what really do we mean by value if we're just talking economics we're, we're going to really miss the point i think like the what, what why should the point just be making as much money as possible or <laughs> finding a way to build the business models to like do the and we know how businesses work in corporations they're not really thinking about ownership in in the ways uh, in a in a you know critical justice lens. They're not really thinking about equity. They're not really thinking about racism or sexism, but we do, you know, we experience them, we live them. And, you know, how, how do we actually apply the technology in a way that doesn't necessarily need to be uh, financial? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like NFTs, even like Patreon, it's not, it's not creating value. It's like, it's like recognizing, recognizing preexisting value. This is, like that, an, like this is like an appeal to our patrons to not leave us because we <laughs> totally neglect them. <laughs> Keep recognizing our value. Keep it up. I'm like, yeah, like we're making really good content. <laughs> I, I, I mean, but I think that it, it's it's just, it's this is a very important point, I think, that we're discussing, which is, yeah, we need to make sure that economics, while it has its place, is one part of the picture and not the yeah. default lens. I mean, what does it mean to look at NFTs through a diversified lens? I mean... One aspect that I think a lot of people find absurd about NFTs is, of course, that you're buying something that is not tangible, and yet you're treating it like art. You care about the original, even though there's no, um, I guess, physical difference. Non-fungible. Yeah, it's 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 utterly non-fungible. Uh, it, it just defies people's basic it's sense. Not exclusive. Yeah, <laughs> it, it defies people's basic common sense as consumers. Um, but let's just set that irrationality aside. And, <laughs> and, and, and look at the fact that this is also kind of resetting the artistic market, assuming that this demand will hold, um, and allowing black artists to actually get credit in a way that has never, maybe never occurred before, at least in this country. 
And if we look at that kind of moral value of NFTs, um, that has to be a part of the calculation before we dismiss it uh, as something that is just uh, a, a big fraud. I mean, arguably, if should a should a, a thriving you know black creative economy grow on the basis of NFTs, you know, just dismissing it as fraud is is, is it might be hurting a lot of people. Um, you know, we we should recognize and have a nuanced sense of the good that is produced. Um, I guess one more thing before we, uh, we might close off yet another, uh, again, awesome, exciting, top class episode. <laughs> I can't wait to just drop a terrible episode one day. <laughs> <laughs> just intro and go. Mm, oh, I, if it's terrible, I won't say it. I'll, it'll start off with the same exact enthusiasm. Um, but this time we mean it. But uh, and maybe we can insert the clip of Jonas talking about incentives and his appeal towards getting more people involved. Like this is exactly it. This is applying, you know, the general tenets of why we even started this podcast to, um, in the first place. Of hey, there's a lot of information and a lot of cool things happening here, and very very little access, at least to the level that we have purchased with FAFSA. <laughs> and it, and that's that's like the tragedy of it all. Like this stuff is so cool, so world changing, life changing, and 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 mind bending. Yet it cost us an insane amount of capital to get access to it. And moreover, it's not like we. It's not like and built into that is what got us here, which is even more accessibility, even more privilege, and even more. Meanwhile, to actually be in the room and to like start learning the issues and understanding them, a year ago I knew nothing about tech. Literally, I knew nothing, and it took me this. You know, it, didn't, it took an interest and a curiosity and seeing myself inside of these inside of these rooms uh, to actually start to even think think of doing anything about it. To even think about experimenting mm-hmm. with tech. I mean, really, like this kind of experiment. We got microphones. We got a computer. We've got internet. This is an experimentation, not unlike experimenting with blockchain to fund a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that we're, it takes a bit, it takes a particular kind of situation right now to discover that you actually have a lot of the knowledge that it takes that is needed to create effective uh, applications of technology for the public interest and effective tech policy. Mm-hmm. Every, you know, people have this knowledge, they build it up all their lives, yet they don't see them as, themselves as tech people. And that concept is mm-hmm. is is a prison yeah, it is yeah, yeah. Like, you're all tech people and the, the curiosity is huge and i feel this like this tug to include a disclaimer which i know that you guys would all agree with which is that like if you want to be a lawyer and you're interested in technology you don't have to take like you don't have to go to stanford you don't have to go to any other school that like someone tells you that you need to, you just don't like there might be other reasons you decide to go and if you do like I validate you. That's great. Like whatever you choose to do for you, but don't feel like you're any less valid in that space because like you made a decision that took other factors into account. And I think that that is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's going to make you in many ways, the, the, the uniqueness of the experience is going to add so much yeah. value yeah. to the applications that we, we have yet to discover. Mm. Um, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to solve anything if it's just coming from the ivory tower mm-hmm. way up here, like, yeah. ever. Like yeah. our problems are so s- stupid. <laughs> mm. I mean, so so to close out, and I think this is a very clean uh, way to close out because it touches on I think what we mentioned at the very beginning of this season, where we talked about application, find the problems, 
find the tools and then put them together and then see if you can solve it. And that is something that I think we're like resting on season one uh, and using those tools for. Uh, I mean, we were already talking about Kai and what we learned from him. Uh, but uh, I mean, this is uh, truly beginning. This is truly the method stage of beginning to identify problems. Also, what Jonas talked about is find the problem first. And similar to just your, dis your disclaimer about being a lawyer in technology, don't focus on the technology. Focus on the problem that you want to solve. Uh, and really go into that. Figure out why it motivates you, uh, and I think that you'll. F and I think that the technologies that will be relevant to you will become obvious. And if you feel inspired to join the conversation, of course, please don't forget to follow us Recognize on all value. the socials <laughs> on Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok, um, in Instagram. And you know, if you find value and you want us and you want to support our our little experiment, little, little, little tussle, maybe that's the wrong word, but little experiment to broaden the conversation and bring more people in. We're also on Patreon um, and we appreciate all the support that we get, even if it's just a like yeah. or a share or a simple download, they all help. Yeah, shoot us an email. Yeah, shout out to our new Patreon subscriber. What was his name? Talal, we love you Talal. <laughs> as well as all the other five. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, five, I meant 50. <laughs> 50. <laughs> five Patreons, 42 countries. Okay, we're impressive. Uh, and yes, shoot us an email at theperipherypodcast at gmo.com if you have an issue you want us to discuss, if you have a question. We love voice notes, and we will include your voice note in the beginning of the episode, and you can frame a topic for us to endeavor because we are nerds, and we will spend the time doing the nerdy things. So you can just sit back and listen and enjoy. Um, see you next week. <laughs>